Hi, everyone. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. I am your host, Al D, and the author of MBA Insider. This podcast is for career-driven professionals looking for advice on how to grow their careers by leveraging the skills, experiences, and knowledge gained from an MBA degree. In each episode, I'll give you a look into the business school experience, along with practical tips, career advice, and real-life stories to help professionals grow their careers. Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I have the pleasure of having with me Nia Dragova, who is the co-founder and CEO of Candor. And I brought Nia on because we're going to talk a little bit about compensation, wealth, and career. Um, I really believe that one of the things that we often overlook as we talk about careers is the fact that it is a source of generating wealth, um, wealth for you, wealth for your, and many other ways. And Nia is on the front lines of uh, this thought process in the work that she does, both in terms of um, helping individuals think about how they can get more wealth out of their compensation packages, as well as with following the how compensation is being done, particularly within the tech industry. And I brought Nia on because I know she's doing some amazing things in the space and has a really great perspective. Um, so thank you so much for joining. Before we dive in, I wanted to start with a warm-up question. And I always love just starting off. And, and my warm-up question for you is, what's, what's a recent piece of media that has caught your attention? And I ask you this because I know you read a lot of things. But tell me, what's, what's something you've seen recently that made you a little bit more curious or made you lean in a little bit more? What's on your mind? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me. It's an enormous pleasure. And I really appreciate the opportunity to spread the message of pay equity and wealth equity and how in tech we can work together to achieve that for promoting education on how your stocks work and, and what you can do to really promote equality for yourself and also for the community you come from. So to your question, what I'm reading right now, um, I feel like it will immediately expose me as the world's biggest nerd. So let's just dive right in really deep. Um, I am currently really concerned about global markets, and I've been digging into the opinions and reports from my favorite analysts. And one of the things that I just consume voraciously is economist reports and analyst reports, especially in a situation like this where we're in really unprecedented times in history. And I am obsessed with this gentleman. His name is Zoltan Pasher. He is the global head uh, of short-term interest rate strategy at Credit Suisse. And he is absolutely brilliant. Like to a degree that I cannot even express. Um, I might be his only groupie and that might freak him out if he ever hears this podcast. But he is really, really brilliant. Um, he's been digging into the macro effects of what is going to happen to the world financial systems as a result of the Ukrainian invasion, um, how that could affect the dollar as a reserve currency, how it could change the financial ecosystem. Um, we literally might be moving to a world that is financially bipolar, where we have ecosystems for finance in the East and the West. And these sanctions might kick off uh, a situation where fintech essentially goes back a generation. We go back to becoming hyper-local if we see such an infrastructure divide in the world. He's one of the few people really talking about this and talking about this from you know, a position of enormous knowledge of how these systems work and how they can really affect the markets. Um, so I'm very obsessed with Dalton's opinion right now. Um, and same way some people maybe follow the Kardashians, I follow him and anything that he puts out there. 
I'm really, really obsessed with. Um, if folks listening to the podcast want to check it out, he did an amazing podcast for Bloomberg recently, and uh, it really dives into these issues and how it would affect stocks and obviously tech stocks as an effect of that and how as a tech employee, you might find yourself making some difficult choices with your compensation. Thank you for sharing that. And and to the last point you made, I, I think it's interesting that he was talking about it within the context of tech. And maybe that's a good place to start because I know that industry is something you knew well. And okay. a lot of your work, both at Candor and with your newsletter, is giving those in the tech industry, who people who work in tech, a financial empowerment. And I would love to know what really led you to going in this direction and maybe what experiences brought your awareness to the lack of empowerment that exists in the space? Sure. Um, it's a very personal issue to me. I'm not originally from the U.S. I grew up in a very small country called Bulgaria and during a communist regime. So in my childhood and my youth, I experienced enormous scarcity, food insecurity, and honestly, a lot of shame and guilt around being poor, a lot of shame and guilt around how to manage money. And I was very lucky that I was you know, smart, academically gifted. I could go to a good school. But I was the poorest kid there. My classmates were basically politicians' kids and other people that would go to this like fancy school for smart kids. And my family couldn't even afford basic groceries. So I realized at a very, very young age that money was really important. And that if we had money, life would be very different in my small bubble of just me and my family and me and my neighbors and the community that I came from. So I had a very, very early awareness that that was important and that's something that I wanted to work on. And um, I started working in financial education as my first job when I came in the U.S. I worked with Freddie Mac Mortgages, helping people who are about to lose their home to foreclosure. And so I was really close to how people make financial decisions, how they affect their outcomes. And later on, I moved on to doing workshops for best practices for banks and credit unions. And I ended up in very senior roles in private banking. And throughout this entire journey, I understood that Financial access was really important, but maybe the way that we're thinking of it had not really evolved to include everyone. We sometimes think of access as something that's basic. So does everyone have the ability to cash a check or does everyone have the ability to open an account? But we don't think of access in the places that sometimes really matter. So if you have someone who works in tech who already has access to some level of wealth just by virtue of their compensation, how do you take this person and really empower them to do something special for their community? So by thinking of access as, you know, an issue at the very beginning of the funnel, you really ignore people that could make a really big impact now and not in waiting 10 years. Um, so it's a really big pain point for me. And I really care about different ways where we can promote financial products for tech employees that, you know, are just used by the wealthy right now or just used by executives but should be accessible to everyone and could create an enormous amount of equity if we did that. I think that's great. And I love how this started from going through your own experiences and seeing how you were able to use them uh, to find an opportunity to help other people. And the other thing that I think about is to what you were just saying, some of these things have existed out there for, for many years, but only within certain circles or within certain stratospheres. And I love the idea of being able to democratize that and to make it more accessible to all people. And I, I would love to know a little bit more just about Candor. So I'll, just for context, I came across it, I believe last year when you put out a, I forget if it was a post or a spreadsheet just around some of the companies out there during COVID-19 during the early days, who I think were 
either laying off employees or um, oh, just it was like a, a crowdsourced list. But that's how I first came across it. I know you have a newsletter now, but maybe tell me a little bit more about the origin story and what it is that you do now. Um, well, the origin story is um, working on financial equity is really important to me. And one of the biggest pain points in financial equity is negotiation. If we don't pay people the same, then obviously their outcome over a longer period of time will differ significantly. And that's how Candor started. It started in my living room in the very beginning, helping people negotiate their salaries, helping their friends, helping their friends' friends, and it sort of went viral. But broadly, the way we see financial equity is not just in enabling people to get paid more, but really doing something with that that could create a societal impact. So what Candor does today is we help tech employees understand their compensation. We help them figure out what might be a better option for them. But then we also help them on the other side. Once you've already achieved getting into your dream job and getting the compensation that is fair, what do you do with it? How do you deal with your stock? Do you sell it? How do taxes work? What do you put the proceeds into? So we focus on helping people make long-term choices to empower their family and their community. We're building the types of products that banks don't want to touch with a 10-foot pole uh, because they're complicated. They're regulated. They require a really big engineering lift. These are all things that banks will do, but they'll do it for their largest clients. And we believe that you as a regular person, me as a regular person, should have the same access to financial, not just education, but really tooling. And we're, we're working to make it happen. More broadly, and you touched on this already, we're building tools to help you manage your career and money to, in tech. Every time one of us takes a job, we become an investor in the company. And that's daunting. If you think of how a venture capitalist makes a decision on where to invest, they're looking at a bunch of spreadsheets and data and information. They get to see a deck. They get to see all sorts of things to make up their mind. And even for public companies, how do professional investors decide whether to buy stock? They look at analyst reports that typically only accredited investors can get. They you know, sometimes do fundamental analysis, look at technical analysis. And you as an employee, just trying to pick a job or reduced to saying, well, the bulk of maybe my family's wealth will come from me deciding if I go for company A and company B. How do I decide the value of this equity between the two? What if one is public and one is private? What if one is big and one is small? And broadly, this is a question no one's working on helping in tech on. And that's why candor for me, it's more of like a social mission than it is even just like a build. <laughs> because today, if, you know, you go to a banker and you say, hey, I really don't know if I should work for DoorDash or if I should work for a startup. They're going to say, well, do you want a checking account? Do you want a savings account? What kind of account do you want? Like, I'm really interested in, 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 in helping you out with an account. But we need to start thinking about this earlier. We need to start supporting young people a lot earlier because many of us in tech are first generation. And assuming because we have technical degrees, we have MBAs, we have like a very high level of education, assuming that means we have a high level of access isn't fair. And uh, that's what we're trying to fix. A couple of things there I wanted to go back and point out. So the first one, to your point about how investors or or other types of financial executives will pour over um, analyst reports or yeah. market data, all those types of things, part of what they're doing is leveling the field on information asymmetry, mm -hmm. right? In terms of being able to get to a better playing field so they can make a, a better informed decision. And I think one of the things that uh, often comes up, and I think what you're probably attacking is that individual job seekers or people who are looking uh, for a new opportunity in their career, many of them are at a disadvantage, you know, particularly when they're going up against another company in the That's sense right. that they are at an information asymmetry. And so 
they're part of that is solved by making information more accessible in public. But the other element of this, which I think you hit on is a little bit, is this idea of even with all the information in the world, you don't know what you don't know, right? If, mm-hmm. if you, even with all the information that's out there, if you're not aware of it, or if you're not aware of the context for how to use it, even if it's there, it's probably not going to be nearly as helpful. And to the point you made, being able to indoctrinate and to empower people earlier on about, hey, this is what you need to know, even if you don't understand it, but you need to, to know this. Well, that makes number one in terms of the information asymmetry go a lot smoother. But I, it's for my own conversations, I'd be curious. I'd be curious to know from you. There are a lot of people who, even with the information, wouldn't be able to use it because they, quite frankly, just they don't they don't know how to use it. And yeah, it's that's because, very yeah. fair. That's one hundred percent fair. And the asymmetry is happening at multiple layers, right? So there's asymmetry between you and the company when you negotiate. The company mm-hmm. literally pays for salary survey data so they can stay competitive in the market. So you're trying to dig online for salary data points, and maybe you get five salaries you can compare, they're looking at maybe a thousand salaries to decide how much mm-hmm. to pay you, right? And that's the asymmetry we're used to talking about in tech. And, and luckily that's become more commonplace. When I started Candor, that was still like a taboo topic. But there's another layer here, and that's really where we start getting really deep. And that's the asymmetry of whether or not you think of yourself as an investor. So luckily in tech, we've been able to proliferate information around pay equity is important, standing up for yourself is important, empowering people around you to do that is important. But we have a long way to go to be able to really tell employees very, very, very easily, like, hey, you are an investor every time you take a job. You need to have discipline of an investor. You need to look at the, you know, data as an investor. And what does that really mean? How do we train our whole generation to really do that? Um, that means that when we're taking a job, we can't just look at it one dimensionally as the type of work we're going to be doing or the type of impact we're going to create. We really need to look at it as, would I buy this stock for myself? And would I stake my wealth in it? How long would I hold it? What would I do with it? And that's the piece of the conversation that I'm tackling right now at Candor and what I think is missing from the discussion. And then the piece after that, the kind of 3D, 3D chess of inequity, right, is Essentially, once you've made the decision and you've optimized thinking as an investor, how do you sustain that throughout your career? How do you decide if you should move between jobs? How do you decide if you know, you're in a place where you are doing the best to generate and preserve wealth as well? And uh, I think that's really important. And I think the next generation uh, of folks coming into tech will have hopefully much better tooling around comparing different options and projecting different outcomes and not just scratching the surface of, do I know enough to negotiate now? Do you know enough to make a decision for 10 years? Because when I buy stock, when I buy a portfolio, I don't buy it for between now and next year. I buy it for between now and 10 years from now. And that's how we should be thinking about jobs. So as you mentioned, start of, part of how you started Candor is because you were doing this one-on-one with friends or colleagues or people that yeah. you met. I'd be curious to know from your own experience talking uh, with, with folks out there, what are some things people get wrong about equity and compensation when they're approaching looking for a job or, or starting a career? Sure. Um, gosh, there's, there's so many. I think it's very different depending on the career stage that you're at. Um, and that's something that you know, we learned along the way when we started Candor. When we started Candor, we, we started helping tech, tech employees broadly to negotiate their pay, right? And we were the first company to do a meaningful scale, helping thousands of people. And we realized that helping people negotiate their pay was much more nuanced than we had anticipated even going into this. 
because there's a lot, a lot of things that play into it. So if you're junior, you have much more limited negotiating power. So for instance, maybe you're graduating, you can negotiate only certain components of your compensation. On the other end of the scale, we ended up working with a lot of people who are executives. The negotiation for them is not just a conversation. It's literally a game of chess, being able to get some good press, being able to present yourself in a certain way, being able to leverage your connections. And it's a much kind of longer process. So a negotiation for an early stage employee might be free conversations on the phone. A negotiation for an executive might be like a five, six month process of positioning yourself right and sort of creating a narrative around yourself before you even ask for money. All right. So there are things that apply for everyone. Um, so rule number one is try to never negotiate in an email. Um, that's a big one, regardless of whether it's senior or junior. That's a rule to live by. A second one that I really stand by is don't be combative with recruiters. You'll see a lot of the, I need to get paid what I deserve. They could really quickly turn into a very emotionally charged conversation. And the recruiter is really there to collaborate with you. You need to use that relationship productively. So knowing how to comport yourself in that conversation and being really collaborative is really important. And then the third thing I would say applies to everyone and everyone should really think about is you should only negotiate. A lot of times people will think of negotiation as I can ask multiple times. I can change my mind. I could look up additional data. You only negotiate once and you only talk about compensation really deeply once in the whole process. If you want to get like the best outcome of what you're doing um, and every negotiation is an opportunity to advocate for yourself, but it's also an opportunity to advocate for people who are like you. So you have to show up in person. You have to push through it. And it's a hard skill to develop, but what pays dividends down the road, how you get promoted, whether you can negotiate resources for your team, which projects you get to work on. That is all a form of negotiation. So the kind of gate to that is how you can advocate for yourself. Yeah, I, I want to jump on that in a little bit because yeah. to your to your point, I think you're you're absolutely right. Every time you get an at bat to negotiate, it is a chance for you to change the trajectory of outcomes that could be uh, consecutive down the road. So when you are negotiating that new job, or and you, it does give you the chance to maybe accelerate or deepen the upward trajectory of what it is that you're doing. But to the point that you made, it also works the other way in the sense that every opportunity is an opportunity to to do it, to elevate that upward trajectory. But it also means that when you do get those options, like you do need to show up and you do need to actually actually go and negotiate. And I think one of the ways in which I wanted to talk a little bit more about this. So I'm a big fan of Lenny's newsletter. Uh, oh, I'm a I subscriber. Letter, yeah. And uh, I know that you wrote uh, a guest post for him uh, where you gave, I think it was called the 10 commandments of salary negotiation. And I would love to have you talk through them. And the the first one is, uh, it says negotiation starts earlier than you think. Can you share a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, a little bit about Lenny's newsletter and the post. So the post is called 10 commandments of salary negotiation. And it goes for a list of 10 kind of best practices of how you should think about negotiating, whether you're going for a public or private company and kind of common pitfalls that you might face. Um, and broadly, Lenny's newsletter is amazing. If you're uh, going for an MBA right now and you're in that process, it's really a great supplement to that, especially if you want to end up working in tech or in product. Um, so the way that we thought about the PS is how do we give people a full view of the negotiation process and make sure that they, at the time, are ready to talk about compensation and not already shooting themselves in the foot. And negotiation begins with the very first time you pick up the phone and you start talking with a company. 
Um, that's something that feels a little bit counterintuitive, right? Because we think negotiation is something we get to prepare for. It only happens when we're ready. And that's how we're societally taught to think about it. But realistically, in, in one of your first calls with the recruiter, you're very likely to encounter a question of what do you expect to be paid and what are you looking to make? And this question could be very intimidating because a lot of times we have different frames of mind of how we might answer it. There's a very interesting uh, study that says women, for instance, typically when asked what a question of how much you want to make, they reference their past salary and add a percentage to that. And typically, I think the study says it's like 20% higher than or 15% higher than my past salary. So we tend to think in a frame of reference of what we made before instead of approaching it as a brand new opportunity and trying to think of how our skills would be valued. So in the very beginning, when you're talking to recruiters, what you essentially want to do is understand the company, the position, the context of where your skills are going to fit in and evaluate your value to that company based on the opportunity to ingest all of that information and see where you could be strategically really, really important and valuable to them. And you really can't tell that in the first conversation. You really can't tell that from the job description. That develops over time. That happens in conversations like, why is the position open? And what are the goals for this position in the next year? Or what are some of the conflicts the team might be having right now? Or what are things that you think would be really important for a person in this role? And you don't really get the good answers for that until you speak to the manager, you speak to the team for a good period of time. And then when you come back and you actually negotiate your salary, you have all of this information to see how you uniquely could solve these problems. And that's how you should value yourself based on the opportunity in front of you, not based on what society is telling you. Pay doesn't need to be linear. In our parents' generation, you got paid X last year and then let's just add 10% or 7%. In our generation, pay is nonlinear. It really doesn't matter how much you made at your last job. If you're more valuable to the new place that you're going, Completely forget how much you used to make and start thinking about how much you could be making with the skill that you have. I think that's such a great point. And I definitely can relate a little bit. Both my parents worked in the corporate world for, for many years, for like, you know, a couple decades and really was a world that was really for, at least for them in the corporate focused on your initial salary or your compensation. And then they did have a yearly bonus and they did get a chance to get some stock options, but that that world is while some of those elements are still there there's plenty of others that are out there particularly in the tech world and certainly there are many more components and elements to a compensation package uh, that extend beyond just the, the 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 dollars that you're getting today which certainly put meals on the table and a roof over the head so i don't want to i don't want to belittle those by any means but going back to you know what we were talking about at the beginning about careers being a source source of wealth um, a, a, a career is is something that goes on for a long time, right? Mm -hmm. it, it's not necessarily uh, something that is going to be for a short period of time. Or for those of you who have many careers or switch careers, you will have many in careers and switch careers over the course of many years. And so the point that I think is really critical as and wh why I think this is so important is that if your career is going to be going on for a long time and your career is a source of of, of wealth, being able to understand what part of that wealth you want today versus what you might defer to tomorrow or the next day or next year, or that like will accumulate over time. I think getting to that critical understanding and the nuance is really important as you think about everything else you're trying to do in your life. And you know, the, the difficult thing too is by promoting pay equity, we actually obfuscate this value a little bit, right? So maybe you're used to thinking of yourself as I'm a level six product manager, and then you go online and you look at salaries for other level six product managers. 
because that's your only point of reference. But maybe the way that you should think about it that makes people more valuable in negotiation. So some of the raises we got for people in candor are like exponential. We've had people that are doubled their income in one negotiation, had people that have made millions, millions more from like a few conversations. And it's not because like we have some kind of uh, magical script here. It's because we are able to see what skills are valuable for the particular place a person's going. Maybe you have industry expertise that's really, really niche. And there's a really big aspect of talent scarcity in, in tech. On a lot of new technology, very few people have worked maybe on something. And you're one of the few people with domain knowledge. Maybe you have experience that is, scar is scarce as well. And so you want to think about where do you really have the highest percentage of, you know, overlap with talent scarcity and kind of value yourself, not just on what you see, a level six product manager, but how do your skills break down and what really makes you unique? Um, in thinking about how to pay everyone fairly, we've shepherded people to a position that everyone's thinking about how do I get paid the same? But we need to transcend that. We actually need to think about how do I get paid more? Because you getting paid more promotes everyone around you, promotes your entire community, promotes everyone else who's like you. And so think of it as like the baseline is what a level six product manager makes. Maybe it's what I get after I get my MBA, right? However, I have these skills that make me more valuable than a level six manager. And so how do I really advocate for myself to make that free visible? I think another thing that I think about as you're describing this, particularly when it comes to the negotiating piece and going back usually a lot of the times it's, it's not just the, Hey, I think I deserve to be paid more. Mm -hmm. And someone just says, okay, it's, it actually is a reflection process internally of you being able to say, I, I would like to you know, increase my earning potential or my compensation. And, and here's why, right. And, and when you get to the, here's why that's when you start really thinking a lot deeper about the impact and that you make to your point, the skills that you have that are rare and valuable and that give you the reason to be able to have that conversation right? To say that I deserve to be paid more. And yeah. it often works as this nice reinforcement mechanism to understanding the value that you add, but then being confident to communicate that back uh, and the way that you can feel really does encapsulate all the work that you do. And yeah, so, sure. yeah. I mean, if I had to summarize it in one sentence, negotiation is not about how you fit in. Negotiation is how about how you stand. Mm. Yeah, so I love you have already fit in. You've been in the interview process. It's been established. Yeah. You check all the boxes. And the time you're negotiating, you're not telling me how you can do the job as everyone else there. You're telling me how you're going to do it better, how you're going to do it differently, and how you're going to really promote your background into it. We have to think about uh, negotiation as a kind of key platform to promote diversity. We don't want people to be the same. We right. don't want people to work the same. We don't want people to be valued uh, the same because we have people with enormously uh, deep expertise, enormously important cultural backgrounds that need to be considered when products are built. And these are things that we need to value. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of times people come to a negotiation and they almost feel like they have to re-justify themselves. Like I have this mm -hmm. degree, I have this experience, I have this, I have that. That's already passed. That was the interview process. The negotiation now is like, how do I stand out from all of this? What are the things that maybe are not obvious and very specifically to what you told me you're looking for, right? So we need to really celebrate differences and, and negotiation is a great way to celebrate diversity by helping promote how we're different and by really standing up for it. So the other commandment that I wanted to talk about briefly, just because a lot of our listeners who are looking at jobs are looking at FANG companies. So for, I guess we're calling it, Ma is it Magna now? But uh, no, I don't even know what's next on it. But 
But yeah, so the 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 commandment is that Fang, your recruiter might have no say at all. Can you talk a little bit about what that means with respect to compensation and just how sometimes these companies have some pr- pretty rigid or can have some rigid kind of structures in terms of salary or bands or what they can offer? And also, if if this commandment is true and someone is uh, recruiting at one of these places, mm-hmm. what what should they know and what can they do about that? Um. I think this kind of comes back to how as an industry we've thought about solving pay equity, right? So there was a time in the past where everyone operated the way that small companies operate. So a candidate would come in front of you and there would be a really big degree of discretion from the hiring manager of how that candidate would be valued. And we saw over a long period of time, and not just in tech and many industries, that two things tend to happen. People tend to hire people that look like them and people tend to pay people that look and feel like them more. And that's a core, you know, issue of why pay inequity exists. So in order to combat that, many tech companies have sort of created a process that really weeds that out as much as possible. And it puts negotiation in this completely different spectrum where the people who are interviewing you are typically not the people who are responsible for your compensation. Let's walk through it. Let's say tomorrow you want to go work at a thing. Typically what happens is one recruiter will reach out to you who is typically a sourcer and their job is just to identify that you're potentially skilled to do the job. They'll do an initial screen. They'll ask you for your salary expectation and they'll usually schedule you for a time with a hiring committee. Hiring committee is sometimes people that you actually won't work with directly. Many times it's called a generalist queue. So it's people in the company who are specially trained to interview people for this role, but not to necessarily interview people for a specific team. And everyone gives you a score after the interview, and, and typically people score you in isolation, uh, blind of each other, to reduce bias. And then again, there's a higher, no higher decision made, and that's when the recruiter gets back to you and the negotiation really starts. The recruiter's job is to take all of this feedback and to take the higher decision and sort of figure out how much you should get paid and how you're potentially are going to be leveled. Sometimes the committee decides that, and some company, the recruiter and recruiting team decides that. And so. This, again, is a point that can introduce bias. So bigger tech companies have created something called a compensation committee. Yet again, a separate group of people who are responsible for determining your compensation without having interacted with you, without having context on you. And the premise of that is that this is one way to promote fairness in compensation practices. So the recruiter will usually take a number from you if they can and then bring it to the committee. The committee will come back with a number themselves. And the recruiter is really a messenger in this process at many big companies. They're not typically the deciding factor of how much you get paid. The committee typically is. And so what many people do is they tend to squeeze their recruiter. Like, I will walk unless you pay me X. I will, and this is horrible to do. If anything, recruiters are your biggest advocates at the company, but you need to realize that you need to help them if you want to be advocated for. So your job as the candidate is to recognize where the recruiter is limited. They can't make a decision for you. But if you want them to help in the process of you getting a raise, you need to help them by giving them a narrative, by giving them data points that they're looking for, and by helping give it to them in a way that they're going to repeat to somebody else. So negotiation at a thing is like a game of broken telephone. And how well you communicate in that process with the recruiter, what gets repeated to the committee well, the committee says back and how willing is a recruiter to go back yet again for you or yet again, three times if they really like you, really depends on how well uh, you build that relationship. 
So when I say the recruiter has no power, it doesn't mean like ignore recruiters. It actually means you need to collaborate with them a lot more. And you really need to watch everything you say in a conversation because it will be repeated. Their literal imperative is to represent you and to repeat it. Um, and if you're a recruiter, my experience with family recruiters is actually very positive. Uh, many of these people get into the profession because they really believe they can make a change. And so typically they're very willing to advocate for you. And where they experience a lot of frustration and a lot of friction is candidates will say, I saw this number online and that's why I want to raise. Well, that's not something a recruiter can go to a hiring to, to a compensation committee with and say, well, uh, my candidate knows how to use Google. That's not great, right? They want to hear about how your skills are unique. They want to understand about whether competing offers are really relevant. They want data. And so if you know how to arm them with data, give them a narrative, they will work collaboratively with you to that process. Um, but you need to be very strategic about that. And in the end, you and the recruiter do have competing incentives in some way, right? So you need to make sure that which cards you're holding close to the chest and when to talk and when not to talk. Does that, does that answer your question? It, it does. And I, I think that the takeaway for me is to the point you made earlier, I think that particularly when working with recruiters, I, I think it's important to acknowledge the nuance in that there's more to be gained by collaborating with them Correct. than by treating them as an adversary. And at the end of the day, the best person to keep track of your own interests is yourself. And it's important to be mindful of that as you choose to communicate a certain elements and things. But yeah, I, a recruiter yeah. is like not your shrink. And that's sure. really where people get in, in, in trouble with negotiation is maybe in the beginning of the process, we might feel uncertain about how much we should get paid. We might tell the recruiter how much we're making now. And you have to understand that the recruiter has alignment with you in some areas and disalignment of incentive in others. You are there to advocate for yourself first, and you have to make up a strategy in your head on your own how you're going to do that. And then you collaborate with the recruiter on that strategy. The recruiter is not there to create the strategy with you. And that's where the major disconnect happens is people put their soul out to a recruiter and quite frankly, put that individual in a very difficult position. Yeah. It's um, not fair to them either. They are there to help you, but you have to help yourself first. So I want to change gears for a second. So I know you've been building Candor for a couple of years now. I would love mm -hmm. to know, hear from you. What are some of your goals and what are you up to for the next year? Candor is so important for me personally. It's a life mission more than it is a company. And like reading the most interesting book in the world, you get really engrossed by it. And then you look up and I was like, oh my gosh, she's the dark. Like time has gone by. And then in terms of the product, um, I can't reveal too much. We have some really cool things in the store. Basically, we're taking on the product that um, only executives get right now and the information that only senior people get right now. And we're trying to make it available and accessible for everyone else. Uh, we have such an awesome group of supporters from lawyers to regulators, to finance folks, to people in tech, really banded together to build stuff. So I hope in the next couple of months, I'm, I'm a little cryptic because we have a few big things coming, but I think in the next couple of months, you'll see, you'll see what it is. And hopefully I'll be a little bit more well-slept so I could promote it properly. That's great. Well, Nia, thank you so much for joining me today for having this conversation around compensation and pay equity. Uh, if people want to learn more about you or Candor, um, where should they go? Where can they find you? It's candor.to. And if you want to uh, get on the newsletter, which is where we talk a lot about what's happening in tech sort of from the inside, like which teams are on the rise, which products are really hot, it's candor.co slash newsletter. Um, pleasure to talk to you as well. And I hope that this was helpful for your listeners. 
Hi, everyone. LD here. And thank you so much for listening to the MBA Insider Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to head over to Apple Podcasts and to write a review. It will only take 15 seconds. I'd also love to hear what you've been listening to on the podcast and any suggestions you have for how we can improve. Find me on LinkedIn or head over to mbaschooled.com backslash podcast.